Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. All the world's a stage and we are merely players. What part will we play when the spotlight is on us? Join us for the message, Lord, teach us to pray. Welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Now all the world's a stage and we are merely players. I didn't make that up, by the way, that is Shakespeare. But what part will we play when the spotlight is on us? And we'll be talking about that later on in the service. Also like to invite you, if you have not done so already this week, to give an offering to the ministry of our church. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org, through our church center app, or by the old fashioned way of just writing us a check and putting it in the plate or putting it in the mail. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning with the first verse. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you do give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret." And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Several years ago, an 18-year-old teenager in Florida spent over a year impersonating a doctor. And it was not the first time that he had done this. Malachi Love Robinson, sometimes simply called Dr. Love, had an unhappy childhood. It was racked by asthma and other health problems. He missed long periods of school while he was hospitalized, and because he didn't have many friends his own age, he looked to the doctors there at the hospital as his friends. Nonetheless, he was an honor student, and Malachi declared that one day he would become a doctor. Only he didn't want to have to go through all that trouble of going through four years of undergrad and four years of medical school and an internship and a residency. So he decided just to show up at the local hospital and started acting like a doctor. He bought a white lab coat. He had his name embroidered upon it. He always kept a stethoscope slung around his neck. And at first, all he did was he kind of just followed the other doctors around. But after a while, he started going into patients' rooms on his own and presenting himself as a doctor. And this first time, he was only 17 years old. And this went on for weeks until eventually his deception caught up with him and he was reported to the Department of Health. 
The problem is there's no law against wearing a white lab coat. There's no law against having it embroidered with your name, and there's no law against having a stethoscope around your neck. And the Department of Health really only has jurisdiction dealing with the misdeeds of actual licensed medical professionals. And actually, it's, it's, it's really quite hard to prove that someone dispensed medical advice without a license. So what happened instead is Malachi was simply barred from the hospital and he was given a very strong written reprimand by the Department of Health, but that was about all they could do. There was no way to prevent him from presenting himself again as a doctor, applying for and receiving a job at an addiction center. Now by this time he was 18 years old and Malachi did not lie about his age to get this job at the addiction center. Instead, he kind of just, he, he, he came off as some sort of child prodigy, kind of like Doogie Howser, MD. And he began to treat pa patients at a salary of $70,000 a year. However, gaps in his knowledge, as well as his very young age, began to raise some suspicions among his coworkers. So when asked to produce his diploma, he said, sure and he brought it the next day. But unbeknownst to others, it was a fake diploma that had been issued by one of those nebulously legal diploma mills. Nonetheless, they took the diploma at, 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 uh, at his word, but the suspicion still continued. But then luck once more shone upon young Malachi. He met a stranger at a cell phone store who told them that he had always had a dream of opening up his very own urgent care center. So Malachi tells him that he's a doctor, and at that point, Malachi leaves the addiction center to start his own clinic. Because of the time he spent working at the addiction center, Malachi knew how to set up and run a medical clinic, how to order furniture, how to order medical supplies, how to advertise and even hire employees. And then he used his skill with social media to promote his new clinic. Well, after receiving an anonymous, anonymous tip revealing Malachi's deception, a local reporter started poking around the clinic and asking some very inconvenient and pointed questions. Well, now alarmed by this reporter's interest, Malachi changed his tactics, and to the delight of his primarily senior citizen clientele, he started serving them by making old-fashioned house calls. He appealed to seniors who were, for some reason, distrustful of the medical establishment, and he often reinforced their beliefs and offered himself as their medical champion. For example, he told one particular woman that to feel better, she needed to purchase these special $200 vitamins, which he had purchased at only $20, when he arrived one day, he did find this same woman lying on the floor in pain, and at least at that point, he had the good sense to call 911. But as she was wheeled away on the gurney, she asked Malachi, would you please lock up my house, and handed him her house keys. And that's when Malachi went from simply impersonating a doctor to grand larceny. When the woman came home from the hospital, she realized that her checkbook was missing, and what was also missing was $20,000 from her bank account. Well, finally, Malachi was arrested, and he was released on bail, but he was told not to leave Florida 
to await his trial. But instead, he decided to go to Virginia and attempt to purchase a used car. On his finance application, he used his real name, but he again claimed to be a doctor making $200,000 a year. Well, this was caught, he was arrested again. Malachi served a year in prison in Virginia for that financial fraud. Then he was transferred to Florida where he served an additional three years for impersonating a, a medical doctor. In an interview that he gave several years after his release, he did express remorse. And he said, I wish I'd made other choices because if I had just gone to college and followed the path instead of trying to take the shortcut, by now I would actually be a real doctor and probably be in my residency. Malachi was a hypocrite, albeit a very extreme example. And it's easy to almost be amused. Well, you know, I kind of am amused by what he actually was able to get away with before his downfall. But nonetheless, he, he caused people genuine harm and he undermined their trust, specifically their trust in the medical community, the medical profession, but also just their overall trust in human beings. Also, he undermined their own trust in their own ability to be able to be discerning. You see, hypocrisy is always detrimental, but especially so when it's done by those whom society has placed in positions of trust, people like doctors and nurses and teachers or clergy. Since becoming a pastor, I found it very interesting to see how people respond when they ask me what I do for a living. I tell them that I'm a pastor, United Methodist pastor. Well, some people just don't know what to say. Some people start profoundly, profusely apologizing for some minor cuss word they may have said earlier. And believe me, I would really be a hypocrite if I condemned other people for cussing. So I tell them it's fine. Yeah, yeah, you know. But another typical response that I get, which I find even more interesting, once people find out I'm a pastor, sometimes people will just open up their hearts to me, even people I've just met. Uh, for example, Friday, I went to the dentist's office for a routine teeth cleaning. And the, before she started, the hygienist asked, well, what do you do? I'm a United Methodist pastor. And she spent the rest of the cleaning telling me about how hurt and wounded she had been by the church. And of course, when someone has both their hands in your mouth, I mean, all you can do is kind of just lay back and listen. In her case, she revealed that many, many years ago, the parish priest at her church, uh, it was learned that he was a pedophile. And though her children were not among his victims, she felt deeply angry and horribly betrayed by both her priest and by the church hierarchy that had placed him there already knowing that he had previously offended in the past. You see, hypocrisy can be deeply, deeply harmful. And with churches and Christians and clergy are hypocrites, it undermines people's trust in the church and it can even undermine their trust in God. Some polls show that among younger adults, when asked for what word comes to mind that describes their first impressions of Christians, in many polls, the very first word that is spoken is the word hypocritical. 
Jesus takes on the topic of hypocrisy in his Sermon on the Mount. The words hypocrite and hypocrisy, by the way, are related to the Greek word for an actor, like, like an actor in a play. And so to be a hypocrite is to play act in order to appear as someone that we're not. It's to wear some sort of a dramatic mask that hides our true face, that hides our true self. Well, as Wesley read earlier, Jesus starts out this section of the sermon with this warning. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he goes on to offer three examples. And the first example, so whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, notice that Jesus does assume that you are going to be giving alms. The question is just the right way to go about it. Giving alms was already a recognized duty for Jews, and it was just simply expected of a Jew that part of their practice would be to, the, the giving of alms. But there had been some practices in the greater Mediterranean culture that by that time had seeped into Jewish culture. And Greeks and Romans of means were expected to donate money for the public good. For example, they might sponsor a, a festival or a temple or a new theater or, or some gladiator games. And it was expected then that that individual's name would be inscribed nearby somewhere so that person could receive credit. It would never have occurred to a Greek or Roman to do this anonymously because the whole idea was to use a donation to increase the family's prestige and honor. But Jesus turns this whole idea on its head. Don't give alms simply to increase your prestige and your honor. If that's all you're doing it for, then you've received your reward. Instead, give in secret so that you'll receive your reward from God, your Father. Jesus says not to blow the trumpet when you give, or in other words, as we would say, don't toot your own horn when you give. Likewise, when you pray, Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't, be pr don't pray just to be seen by others. Instead, go to your inner room and pray in secret. And God who sees you in secret will reward you. Most translations will say, go into your room or your inner room or your chamber. Um, though I really kind of like the old King James version that says, go into your closet and pray in secret. And so there are some things that should be kept in the closet. So there you go. Jesus then says the same thing about fasting. When you fast, wash your face, comb your hair, brush your teeth. God knows you're going to be fasting and God will reward you. And, and fasting, I might add, does not always have to be fasting from food. As one commentator put it, fasting is a voluntary abstention from an otherwise normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. Fasting could include fasting from technology, fasting from social media, both of which I've done uh, sometimes just to get my spiritual bearing back. And sometimes I have to take a fast from the news, rather reading it or watching it. Again, notice, though, that Jesus assumes that we're going to be giving alms and praying and fasting regularly. 
But the purposes of these spiritual practices is not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw ourselves closer to God. It's God that we're striving to please, and it's God who will reward us. But wait, you might ask, does that mean that we're still being motivated by getting a reward? Shouldn't we be doing these things altruistically with no thought of having a reward? And what exactly are we expecting to receive as a reward for our piety? Well, perhaps surprisingly, Jesus is suggesting that we are to be motivated by being rewarded. During the spring of 2021, we explored the other great world religions in our sermon series, The Warmth of Other Suns. And I, I remember one of the most interesting differences that we came across was between Christianity and Buddhism. And to put it very simply, in Buddhism, suffering is thought to have its origin in our desires. So the path to be free from suffering is to, through meditation, free ourselves from desire. By contrast, Christianity, and I might add the other Western religions of Judaism and Islam, doesn't try to eliminate our desires, but whether to redeem and reform and restore our desires to their true purpose, which is to draw us closer to God, so that we desire God above all other things. And so we are thus rewarded in that case for our piety by the faith, hope, and love that we experience. One of my favorite quotes is from the late philosopher and spiritual writer Dallas Willard, who some of you may be aware of. This is a long quote I'm about to read you, but it is so full of wisdom. And Willard reminds us that it's not just the sacrifices, um, or Willard doesn't just remind us of the sacrifices of being a Christian, he reminds us of the enduring benefits of Christian discipleship. This is what he has to say. It was right to point out that one cannot be a disciple of Christ without forfeiting things normally sought in human life. But the cost of non-discipleship is far greater, even when this life alone is considered, than the price paid to walk with Jesus. Non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstand the forces of evil. In short, it costs exactly that abundance of life Jesus said he came to bring. The correct perspective is to see following Christ not only as the necessity it is, but also as the fulfillment of the highest human possibilities and as life on the highest plane. Now, since we are, however, very imperfect human beings, our motive for any action is never going to be completely pure. We may have a very sincere desire to be close to God, a sincere desire to help others, but there's always going to be a little part of us that kind of does want other people to see our piety or to get some sort of earthly credit for it. We just need to be sufficiently self-aware that we recognize our mixed motives and we don't let those mixed motives drive our actions. Besides, as one commentator put it, if we waited before giving to charity until our motives were completely pure, then the poor would starve. 
give anyway, even if your motives aren't completely pure. But how are we to balance Jesus' admonition to not flaunt our piety before others, but also with his teaching that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Because Jesus taught us to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. But if others are to see our good works, doesn't that necessitate that we show our piety before others? It can help if, as we are being light for the world, that we shine that light to illuminate God and not ourselves. But what about good works? And what does Jesus even mean by piety? when he said, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. Interesting, the word here translated as piety can also be translated as righteousness. It can also be translated as justice. It's the same word that's used in the Beatitude in the chapter before, uh, where Jesus said, blesses are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So another way to read that is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake or for piety's sake or for justice's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There is inseparable link between spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines on one hand, such as prayer and fasting, and works of social justice, which may result in our persecution for the kingdom. Both are vital and indispensable parts of the Christian life. And so this is, this is the understanding that I have come to, uh, to understand that balance that we are to practice as we let the light of our good works be a beacon to others while also not practicing our piety before others. The way I understand it, we don't make a show of our spiritual practices. We pray and fast, again, not to draw attention to ourselves, but to draw closer to God. And through these practices, we will experience the reward of grace and peace that is to be had as a disciple of Jesus Christ. But when we work for social justice, we're working for the ways of love because justice is simply the way love is lived out within a community. And we need to let the community see how we provide for the poor and raise up the downtrodden and free the oppressed. How we empower the 99% proclaim that black lives matter, and extend our reconciling arms to those of the LGBTQ community. We are a witness to the righteousness and justice of God. And when we're asked about the motivations behind our good works of righteousness and justice, or as the author of 1 Peter says, to make our defense to anyone who demands from us an accounting for the hope that is in us, then we can proclaim that we do these things because of the love of God that we have received through Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, we want others to look at us and give glory to our Father in heaven. Then don't do this by, if you want that to happen, if you want others to see and give glory to God, then don't do this by making sure that people see you praying in public or making a big donation to charity. Make sure they see it by seeing you act like Jesus. Not a hypocritical play actor hiding behind a dramatic mask, but truly acting like Jesus. Because acting like Jesus for real is the best possible witness that we can offer to bring that illumination of God's light into a world of darkness and to light the stage 
of God's justice in the world. Amen. And now with the confidence that we have as the children of God, let us pray the prayer that our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now, receive this benediction. Go and be a spotlight of God's love and justice in the darkened stage of this world and know that your Father will indeed reward you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed and were blessed by today's service. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series based on the Sermon on the Mount found in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll find audio recordings of all our services on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. Remember, we're now worshiping both in person in our sanctuary as well as online. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church. Thank you.